Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spiravauer. Welcome everyone. Joining me today, I am honored and humbled to introduce Dr. Jennifer Wilson, who is the Putnam Northern Westchester BOCES Education Technology Coordinator. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. How are you this morning? Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm doing well. Hope you are too. And we're also joined by Katinia Davis, the Chief Instructional Support Services Officer in South Carolina's Richland II School District. Welcome, welcome, Katinia. Good morning and welcome to everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I know the reasons why the two of you are our very first guests on this hybrid webinar podcast format, but I'd like the attendees who are joining us from all over the United States to get a chance to know you as well. So Dr. Wilson, I'm going to start with you. In what ways have you defined innovation in your own life, in your own professional world that makes you a candidate to be one of our, our very first guests on today's podcast? So um, Haley, I think innovation starts with an idea that is then implemented, but what makes it innovative is that the implementation actually produces a change. So I'm looking for things, not only like a great new idea or you know something to try out, but that the result of the implementation is that there is a change that's made. So a value add, a value add. I love that. I think that, that many people in the audience may agree that is a great way to define innovation. I'm excited to hear about all the ways in which you've either found or, or discovered or even implemented ideas that brought about great change in our conversation today. And Ms. Davis, the same question for you. How do you define innovation? How do you define it in your professional or personal life? And, um, I would and to give people a reason for, you know, why we were so excited to have you on today. Oh, thank you so much, Haley. I would say that innovation is really taking something that you normally do and doing it differently or adjusting it to really make it flow easier or in a new way for individuals and in the work kind of way. And in my personal life, it's really, you know, adjusting things so that I can maximize time with my family. So innovation, I hear a similar theme as what Dr. Wilson was talking about with the value add, with a bend towards efficiency. So In what ways have you, in your career, now I'm going to step us back from the the idea of innovation, but I want to think about your journey in education because both of you have really been influential members of the communities that you've served in throughout the past years you've been in education. I want to start and just open up the floor for a conversation around your own journey in education and how it's led you to where you are today. So Dr. Wilson, will you start us off, talk to us a little bit about where you began your career in education and how you wound up in the role that you're in serving in today. So um, I'll be honest, I didn't ever see myself as being a teacher or an education, but when I was in college, I was really inspired by one professor, um, Tom McHugh, who shared that he was teaching students uh, Shakespeare using rap songs. And this was back um, in uh, the late 80s, just to tell you how old I am. And <laughs> he really intrigued me that you could 
you could reach certain goals with students and teach things, not just, oh, you're reading the book and answering the questions. And so um, from there, I spent an extra semester um, at Vassar College um, to become certified as a teacher. In, and I started teaching in Westport, Connecticut as an elementary school teacher. And um, very early on, I was a little different than a lot of the other teachers. Uh, we didn't have assigned seats in my second grade classroom. Uh, my students uh, wrote their own report cards and we had uh, parent-child teacher conferences because my students created portfolios to share with their parents what their strengths and areas of need as learners were and what their goals were. Um, and I, so I spent a couple years in the classroom in Connecticut, and then I moved to New York when I met my now husband, and I became an administrator about 20 years ago, and I've done a whole host of things from being a tech director to being a principal to being a director of special education. And But in all during all of this, I was always very intrigued by the innovation that technology could offer to learning. And so I'm really thrilled to be in my current position at Putnam Northern Westchester BOCES, where I work with um, the region and specifically our 18 component school districts and our programs here on campus, where we have about 1,500 students a day to really look at how can we leverage technology to improve student outcomes. I think different can be a good thing. Ms. Davis, I feel like you might agree with that. The two of you had some parallel paths along your career. Is that right? Yes, I was um, just thrilled um, when Jennifer was talking about her pathway because very similar. I didn't initially start out um, wanting to go into education. Um, I, during high school, took a lot of business courses and, and really loved accounting and had planned to become an accountant. And I started tutoring and tutored during freshman year of college and found out that I really connected with peers and teaching them. And I, I kind of flashed back to a time when I was in high school and I was a, a mentor buddy for a, a young lady that was a quadriplegic and spent a lot of time with her and decided, you know what, I think I really like working with others. And I don't know that being in my office, you know, working with my ledgers is going to be fulfilling. So decided I would merge my love of numbers with education and became a, a math education major. And so love working in the classroom as a high school and middle school algebra geometry teacher and really connecting with others, but decided that I wanted to broaden my scope a little bit and move into school administration and work with Title I. And when I made it to the district office after being assistant principal and my superintendent came to me and you know, says, I know you love working with people, got something I want you to do that's probably a little bit out of your wheelhouse, but I know that you can do this. And he says, I want you to move over to the special education department and really become a liaison between the, the folks that are really very special ed and nature background and kind of merge that with school administration. And so it's like, okay, this is a little different. So took on the, the challenge, love the superintendent at the time, and took my general ed background and became a part of the special ed team and found my passion and was really able to bring some of my ideas to kind of do some innovative projects with the team. And so, so that kind of began my journey of really doing innovation and at my advocacy. I really enjoy working in the community and doing public service work with service organizations. So kind of put on two hats and started going into schools and advocating for 
change within the district to really connect special education and having it become a part and really not a separate entity within the building. And then had an opportunity to become principal and then came open, this job became open where I could really have a larger impact and move our special education division forward. And so got into this role and it has really allowed me to kind of get special ed out of a silo. And, you know, yes, we write wonderful IEPs and bridge gaps, but we also are very academic in nature. And so our district has an innovation incubator. And so we're able to take projects there and work on them. And we've had multiple special ed teachers go in there and work on innovation. So um, it's such a critical part of a school district if you want to find success. And um, I'm sure as we move through the conversation, conversation, I'll be able to share some of the um, projects that we've had um, come out of that to really connect. For example, I wanted to share that we were really struggling with how to serve students that had disabilities, whether medical or um, physical disabilities and needing support at home. And so we had an opportunity to work with our tutor to bridge that gap and provide services for our students. And it was a little different, kind of innovative because it wasn't something that we've normally done. So we were able to bring a certified teacher into the home at a time when it was convenient for families because initially we were sending teachers out after school. Well, prime time for students is during the school day. And so we were able to use this new connection with our tutor to bring um, that teacher into the home during a time when it was most effective for a family. And that's innovation to me at its best, when you can do something to really help your families that you're serving in your school district. I just have to share that that my experience with iTutor was very similar. I we, we partnered about four years ago and I saw the ability to, and you know, this was before COVID, before everybody knew what a Zoom mm-hmm. meeting was. And all of a sudden we had a way to reach medically fragile students during the school day with a certified teacher to really help them move forward, where before we were waiting for our teachers to be done with the school day and then they would tutor. And also there were some situations where for medical reasons, we couldn't send someone into the home because they couldn't be exposed to germs. And so, yeah, I tutor was, is, I, I, I remember very well the first day I met the two individuals from I tutor who told me about their product. And I'm like, I'm sold now. We just have to get this into the hands of students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to tell our listeners, I, I specifically did not ask Dr. Wilson or Ms. Davis to be talking about iTutor here. And, you know, we're really proud of the innovation that we bring to school districts. But I, I really want to shine a light, right, keeping that theme alive, on the specialized population of students with disabilities. I've heard both of you now name that as driving forces in how your career has progressed. And specifically, there's a topic that I want to pull out, which is about advocacy work for students with disabilities and how advocacy work ties into innovation. So so both of you have named that you really worked hard to advocate. What were the barriers or roadblocks to access or getting students with disabilities specific uh, accommodations or needs or resources prior to the advocacy work that you started? So I don't I don't know that there were roadblocks, but maybe things didn't exist. And that's where um, for me, instructional technology is really leveling the playing field and, and really is, is, is that tipping point for a lot of students. 
you know, when I was a child, so I, I grew up with a vision disability um, and I was a, a student in schools before a lot of the laws went into place about equal access and leveling the playing field. And like, there was no such thing as a 504 when I was a child. Um, and so I had to learn to advocate for myself where I needed to sit so I could see better and and how much reading I could do. Well, you know, immersive reader in Microsoft. I if, if I had the ability to have my textbooks and to be able to have them read to me, that wasn't a possibility when I was a child. I mean, the computers were the size of our offices. They, they didn't sit on your on your desk. It was a whole different world. So I think the innovation that technology has brought to be able to solve problems. I'm a big believer in universal design for learning and even universal design for communities. Like think of a simple sidewalk. If a sidewalk is properly constructed, someone with a wheelchair or someone with a stroller can easily move from one side of the street to the other. If not properly constructed, they can't. Yeah, there's a level of privilege that comes with access to what everyone considers standard. Right. I mean, even opening a, a door, look at the doorknob in your house. I mean, I put in new doorknobs in my house because I wanted the ones that you could push down and not the ones you had to twist because my mom is in her 80s and she has trouble twisting. In fact, she's twisted enough of my doorknobs and broken them off. So like, I'm going to give her doorknobs that you can push down. And you think about that, that's a huge innovation, but it's also an accessibility. And I think that's where technology really, and I think through the pandemic, we've seen how how students can learn using technology that maybe we didn't think they could in the past. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think, you know, that the access, whether, you know, technology or, um, you know, just the simple things for, for, I know for our school district um, was really opening the doors for collaboration between students with disabilities and students without. And we were able to, we had a teacher that took on a, a service animal and it became the facility dog for her school. And it, the amazing thing happened is you had students that were in general education classes, sitting with students with disabilities, interacting because both of them needed that calming effect of the dog at the same time. And we saw that relationship building because there are times when our students that are in more specialized programs, they don't have the same interaction with their non-disabled peers. Going to lunch with someone does not spark conversation and relationships. You have to put in um, opportunities for children to have those relationships. And so we've seen really a growth in the number of opportunities for days where we have students learning more about disabilities, interacting. And definitely our district has done some great things with technology. We've had robots that would travel the hallways for students that may be at home, which was quite interesting. We had a, a student that, unfortunately, he was playing, typically developing student, playing a football game, was hit on a Friday night and was not able to walk again. And so they dressed his robot in his jersey once he was able to become a part of school again. And so, you know, when he graduated and walked across stage, walked across the stage, it wasn't shocking to the students. They knew who he was. Um, and he actually ended up walking. They had a specialized wheelchair that allowed him to stand and move across the stage. And what a great moment because it, he was still connected with his peers. And so to see what technology can do 
even though I'm definitely not as tech savvy as, as Jennifer, but just watching to see what it can do for students is just amazing. But the advocacy for me is really saying, okay, what are we going to do? I, I don't know how, but I do know we need to do something to engage students. Let's find the resources. Let's find the, the technology. It's got to be out there. And let's not immediately limit what students can do. Let's open doors so that they can make sure they maximize their full potential. And I think both of you named non-technology non related and technology related ideas. Innovation doesn't have to mean a new mm -hmm. app or a new product or a new device. And I know, you know, Dr. Wilson, you talked a little bit about how you brought innovation to the classroom when you were a teacher yourself. What do you see in your school districts today? Like you have, you span 18 school, school districts. Is that correct? So I, I, we have 18 component districts and I also work with probably about 50 different districts across the state, but I do need to add something to what Katina was saying, because we, we did a really interesting project here three and four years ago. I partnered with um, a local school district, the Scarsdale school district. They had a, in their high school, they have an innovation lab that offers a course in entrepreneurship. And so we partnered with them. We have on our campus, we have a school for medically fragile children and most of the children um, are in wheelchairs. And we also have classrooms in a nursing home for children. We have three classrooms in a nursing home for children. And we brought the seniors from Scarsdale High School to both our campus and to the nursing home. And we had them investigate things that they could do to make the lives better of those individuals with disabilities. Um, and actually one group, the first year won an, an award from Wells Fargo. They had created some clothing that had different closures so that it was easier to change and also some bibs that had more dignity for older children. And I think that I, I agree with Katina that for me, the passion has been in special education because you really see that you can make a difference. But I felt I was so proud of these students and I was also thrilled to send children off to college, realizing that they needed to have empathy for people with disabilities. And they also needed to look at the world as a place that needed to include everybody. I mean, I know we talk a lot about diversity and equity and inclusion, but to actually experience it and work with students who have such severe um, disabilities was very eye-opening. And the way they were able to reflect on the process and not realizing like, you know, I don't know if I thought about it when I was in high school, how tough it might be if I had to live in a wheelchair and simple things like having someone move me from one room to the other and also have to drag an oxygen tank behind. One of the inventions was a clip that could be put on the wheelchair to include the oxygen tank without voiding the warranty on the wheelchair. So there were some really interesting things that came out of that. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I agree. Like we, I, I think we as educators have an obligation to not only meet the needs of people with disabilities, but expand the understanding of others without disabilities that how, how do we include them and, and how important it is to do that. Wow, I have the chills hearing both of the two examples that you shared about creating empathy I think that empathy is something you can grow. I know research tells us it's something you can grow. And so thinking about ways that you have seen innovation build empathy for students, that ultimately makes our world a better place, not just one, one individual experience of a child. 
that really drives home the point, I think, about how thinking about problems differently and, and approaching problems from multiple angles can yield different impactful results. Yeah, and I think that that is one thing that I found, and I, I talked a few minutes ago about the innovation incubator that we have within our district, and the the wonderful part of it is that we bring together, or the, the incubator brings together our support staff, our certified staff, administrators together to work on projects, and they have worked on scheduling, they have worked on attendance lines, they've worked on innovations for the classroom classroom directly. And it's it's amazing. And then we have um, our Institute of Innovation where our students attend and our students have worked on some great projects. They have worked on providing battery power to families in um, Africa because it's such a, you know, many times folks will have cell phones, but they don't have access to power. So they work on some solar powered battery packs that were easy to assemble because they said that folks could get things, but they're not easy to assemble. And sometimes they're cost prohibitive. So the students were innovative in coming up with some ways to provide that and to see the the delight, the feedback that they got from the schools that they served in Africa was just amazing. So I think that that's the innovation. You want to see it, especially in an educational setting, not only the adults engaged in innovation, but to see students engaged in innovation and really thinking about ways that they can transform the world around them. Um, Haley, I think we have a couple questions in the chat. Yeah, I was I was actually going to share with everybody that you're welcome to drop questions in the chat right now or save them for the end, but let's make it authentic and do it right along. So there's a question about instructional strategies. It says, in terms of instructional strategies, should inclusion need a separate teaching plan? Or is all teaching per a plan personalized and individualized for every single class? So, I, so I, I'll, I'll start by saying, um, the first thing that I'll say is I believe everybody deserves a personalized learning plan. And um, when I was a director of special education, I always felt like it, we should, every, everyone needs special education. Everyone needs an individualized education plan, um, an IEP. To meet, to meet their needs. And it, with inclusion, the one thing that I would say, I'm not sure you need a separate teaching plan, but you need to be sure that you're training your teachers to understand how to meet the needs of students who learn differently. Um, and again, I, I feel like it would help everyone in the classroom. I, I often, I, I have a girlfriend who's a teacher and we often have an argument. She's like, well, why should I do this for this one kid? And I'm like, why don't you do that for every child in your class? and see what happens because what are they going to lose like i you teach second grade if you read the test aloud to the entire class does it really matter um so we always we have those um debates all the time and that's such a, a great point i think that um that customized learning is such a benefit for all kids um, and i agree jennifer i think if it reading it aloud if it doesn't impact the, the grade in any way, why not read it to everyone? Because somebody in there, though they may not have an, an, an IEP written or a 504 written, they are auditory learners and they could benefit from the teacher reading it aloud. And so I think that um, really using some of those strategies in an inclusive setting, I mean, it, it it's just a win-win for everyone. And it doesn't really hurt anything. 
you know, I thought, I think about a, um, one of our um, former assistant principal, assistant superintendents, you know, said, you know, there are many times that as adults, we don't turn things in on time or we ask for extended time and we're provided that. But as educators, sometimes we, we can be very punitive when a child says, you know what, I need a little bit more time. And we're pretty adamant about our deadlines. But by the same token, we will turn around and ask our supervisor for a little bit more time for whatever's going on in our personal life or work life. And so really it, it's giving those strategies to children at an early age teaches them to value that. It teaches them to value that, you know, for the most part, you turn things in on time. But if you can't, you ask for a deadline, you don't avoid the situation. And so I think that that instilling those skills, those soft skills, is so important for our students. And sometimes it, it boggles my mind that these ideas are innovative, right? The idea yes. that we should tailor our teaching, tailor our programmatic structures, tailor our systems to support every individual child. But I think that's why you're here today because it, mm -hmm. it is second nature for both of you and for the communities that you serve, but it isn't necessarily widespread across the board. It is an innovative idea. Yeah, I think it, innovation is a great term, but it's really what we should be doing anyway. It, it really should be a part of who we are it is really making, helping students access. And I, Jennifer mentioned a little a few minutes ago about inclusion and equity and diversity and really making that a part. That's, you know, some people may say innovative, but it's what we should be doing anyway. It's finding ways so that all students, all children can access what they need to be successful. And for those of us in leadership, it's doing the same thing for the adults that we supervise is creating those opportunities for innovation, for access so that individuals can be successful. And I think if everyone has that mindset, then we see growth, we see students uh, performing better and really loving learning. We're creating that desire for more because we're, we're not just um, putting a, a, a dome over what they can learn. We're opening it up so that students can see their, you know, what is really out there and that the, the knowledge base is wide open for them. And it's beyond what they can imagine if we don't put those barriers in for them. Back when I was a classroom teacher, we talked a lot about learning styles. I know now we talk a lot about mindset, but now back when I was a teacher, we talked about learning styles. Are you logical, mathematical? Are you kinesthetic? Mm -hmm. um, and what I used to like to be able to do was work with my students and teach them to self-identify where their strengths were and where their potential areas for improvement. Because just because you're an auditory learner, if you are a visual learner as compared to an auditory learner, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't spend time trying to increase your auditory learning skills. Because there are times, like if you're listening to a podcast, podcast isn't, a, isn't something good for a visual learner, right? But it's really good for an auditory learner. And we all need to be able to be versed in, in all different kinds of learning. So, I mean, I, I have to agree with you that we need to be sure we're personalizing things. But at the same time, I also think we need to be asking students to stretch their abilities and try things in maybe your non-preferred learning style because you don't know what you might do. Like you might not identify as a kinesthetic learner, but you might try something hands-on and be, oh, this is my passion. 
Um, I found it very interesting when I was a teacher, I would have the students self-identify their strengths as learners, and then I would ask their parents to, to identify, <laughs> and I would let them compare, and they were never, ever the same. <laughs> Children saw themselves very differently than their parents, and parents were saying, oh my gosh, I always went on, I did this with, on the weekend with my kids, or I did this for enrichment, and that really wasn't like what they wanted, um, or, you know, so kind of interesting. Yes, absolutely. And now someone's asking the question, I'm going to kind of reframe it as a larger, bigger point that, that I think both of you have been have been touching on in the past couple minutes, but how do we identify the learning preferences and needs of students? Obviously, we have standardized tests that help us identify sort of where students are academically, what skills they've mastered or are still working or grappling with. So how do we identify their, and I know, you know, there is some conflicting research around learning styles and whether or not we've, we've really hit the nail on the head that there are these distinct categories around auditory, visual. I think regardless of what the research says, it's good to vary the learning. But how would we identify that as educators in order to better support students? Um, I like to, to watch students um, when they're collaborating um, because, you know, sometimes you'll find that a student who maybe identifies as um, not being, um, a, a, a seeing themselves as a leader, uh, when they are working collaborative, collaboratively and they wanna see that work getting done, this natural leadership will just come out and you will see them directing the members of their group. And maybe that student who you thought would be the natural leader, they might really pull in and be the person that really becomes the more hands-on organizing person. So sometimes it's just watching students in their natural environment when you have them working together. And I think it, it's very important, especially for that student that may be more reserved, is to notice and capitalize on the fact that they are a natural leader and help them really develop that and take ownership of, you know what, I am a leader. Though I may be quiet and reserved, you can use that and lead from that, you know, lead from that position. So I think it's very important that we allow it kind of to come out naturally. Um, in addition to the things that definitely that you shared, Haley, the, the assessments the, and that type of thing that's, that, that children will do. But I think watching them is such a great way to learn who they are as learners. I have to agree. And I also think um, having had the opportunity to watch them during COVID and how when given the opportunity and more think time, because it's not, you don't have to raise your hand, you're not in person. I think we learned a lot about our students that we might not have known before. Um, I, I also um, remember when I was a classroom teacher, even though I was an elementary teacher, we dropped our students off at, for physical education or music or art. Every once in a while I stayed and watched um, to see what I, to see, because sometimes a student who's not necessarily vocal or a leader in the classroom is the leader in chorus or is the leader when playing a, a sport and doing physical education. So I think, and it, or on the playground. So I think we also have to, exactly what Katina said is we really have to watch our students and encourage them. But I think we need to look at them in different environments, not only in the classroom in front of you. 
I remember when I was an administrator and we would do get ready for evaluations for students who weren't meeting the milestones and markers that their families or their teachers were hoping that they would. That was actually a requirement that they had to be observed by multiple parties in multiple settings um, in order to document their just their kind of performance and their their strengths so that it wasn't just a focus on where there were lagging skills, but also where were the students really capitalizing on their personality or their physicality or their intellect that we don't typically associate with learning, which is, is which we should, which we yeah, should. Of course, of course. Not everybody's meant to sit in front of a computer all day. Not everybody's meant to tabulate mathematical equations. We, the world needs all types of people. So let's let's help students cultivate those those skills, those important facets of their personality. So I see another question has come in around screens. So I think this is a good shift for us to to sort of think about the pandemic and how it has changed education. I think for good, but I'm curious what you think because <laughs> nobody's here to hear what I think. Someone is really bringing light to this topic of students using screen time and how it impacts them as learners, as people. And I'm curious how you've seen the use of screen time, the impact of screen time change within your school or school district or component schools this past 18 months. So, I mean, we've been using, when when we've been home, we've been using a lot of Zoom in, in this region or Google Meets or Microsoft Teams. Um, I don't know that we've been on them for eight hours a day. I do think that we've had to do a lot of reevaluating of teaching strategies. And also, you know, at least here, I've been doing a lot of training with teachers on different strategies to use when in a Zoom meeting. Like one of my favorite one is some people call it the waterfall chat or the cascade chat, where you ask everybody to put a response in the chat, but don't hit enter until you say so. And then that gives everybody a chance to participate and, and have their voice heard. And then you can either have them read back what they wrote, or you can read it back for them. Um, so um, from a vision perspective, because I do um, have a vision disability, I think it's important that we recognize screen time of focusing intensely on a screen, like playing a video game versus being in a chat like we are now. You know, when you're in a meeting now, they say from a cognitive perspective, if you put it on speaker view, it's less taxing on your brain than if you're looking at everybody in the room. So you know, teaching students those strategies. I think we definitely increased the amount of time spent in front of screens, not because we wanted to, but because we didn't have an option. But we also, in, our, in this region, teachers and schools did a really nice job of encouraging students to do activities offline and come back, go out for nature walks. Um, I'll be interested to see, because we're not back in, we're back in school, but we're, we have some kids quarantined and um, some schools are closing down. We are I'll be interested to see when COVID is over, if that ever happens, how we look at technology and how, how now that we've moved to most students having a device, because we, we really became one-to-one -one very quickly over the pandemic, how do we now take that technology and use it in our classrooms when it's not that they need it because they need to be part of the classroom? Um, and I know that that's something we were working on before. I feel like we came 10 years in 18 months. Right. <laughs> because, you know, now it's not like, oh, I need to come to the computer lab to learn how to click on a mouse. Now it's like, okay, what can I do with this piece of equipment? 
Um, so yeah, so I, I the, the, the screen debate is has been one that's been around for a long time in the region. There are some parents who say, I don't want my child in front of a screen at all. I do think that a lot of what we teach, we can give activities that are offline that you don't have to be in front of the screen for. Um, and even this conversation, we could turn our screens off. We could not be looking at our screen and, and, be, and be engaged. Uh, I know we do ask kids to turn their cameras on so we know that they're there. I don't know. Yeah. Tina, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree that um, the, the pandemic really caused us to very quickly seek solutions to end the, the inequity of, of access to technology, the hardware and broadband, you know, so that all children, um, for the most part in this country are, they either have it, or they have a hotspot, or they have something so that they can connect, which I think, you know, has really opened the world for students that did not have access before. But it did open up the, the conversations about screen time. And, you know, we did have some parents, just as Jennifer had that, you know, they did not want their children to take advantage of our, of the one-to-one that was available. Um, so we had to be creative. And so it, it does lend that the fact that there are, you know, we can still do many of the educational things we need to do without technology. But the reality is, is technology is how we, we are working and learning now. And so we really, we have to move our students forward very quickly. Pretty much, you know, many of the, the industries that, you know, humans used to do, now they're a robot. So now they just need a few people to run the computers or, you know, the, the stations so that those jobs can be completed. So we have to give our students um, an opportunity to learn those skills or we will not, in, in our nation, be able to compete with other nations around the world. Now, I do think that, you know, we do have to be cognizant of the developmental appropriateness of keeping students on devices all day. And in, in just like um, in Jennifer's um, schools in her region, you know, we, during our professional development with our teachers in our district, we talked about, you know, 15 minutes of an activity, giving students opportunities to maybe go look for something in the house, to engage with the lesson, just to get students up and moving and to get them away from their screen. And, you know, teachers would say, turn your screen off, and then we're going to come back in five minutes and we're going to share and that type of thing to try to get students away from their screen. It's the same thing that we do when we're at our workstations. You know, we get up, we move around, you know, we take our breaks and that type of thing to get away. So we have to really teach our students to do those same things. And I think that it it doesn't separate them from learning, but it actually teaches them how to interact with their technology, that you just don't sit and stare at it without taking a break. It's an informed adoption of technology, right? Yes. And it's now we have a little bit of hindsight. We can look back at the past 18 months. We can see what we want to keep, take with us, right? When this is hopefully over, we want to see what we could take with us. So what will, what will you take with you? If you could advise your schools or school district, what would you want to take with you in a post-pandemic world from the past 18 months? That... For me, on a more personal note, that I, I need to take time for myself and, and kind of get off that wheel and learn how to craft. You know, I've got that cricket machine, get in there and figure out how to work it, you know, do a creative, innovative project for my family. So use innovation in a different way in the home setting as in the, on the professional end, I would think 
you know, as um, as an administrator, um, provide the support, move out of the way, and watch our staff members and our students soar. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the regulations that we're checking boxes. We really need to make sure we're letting teachers teach and students learn. What do they need in the classroom? What are they sharing with us? Because really, when this pandemic hit, everybody had to get in there to work. Teachers had to really say, this is what we need to make it work. And then we were on our end at the district level, trying to find those resources and pulling them together, putting that professional development together. And so it really became that usually that hierarchy was flattened very quickly because we, we really had to get, we had to all get in there and you know make packets when we first hit me when this first happened because every student didn't have technology. So how are we going to get that out? How are we going to get mental health services to our students that needed it? Okay, we're going to get on the bus. We're going to be in the community. We're going to have students coming up that say they, they need assistance and need somebody to talk to. That was something we had never thought to do, you know, because during the summer, sometimes there would be that gap for students. Now we're like, let's get in there and and have, you know, services available for students year round. So innovation has brought about so much. And I think just keeping that wheel flowing of innovation and let's think about things and open the door for things we've never done before. Um, for me, for you, yeah, uh, and, so and for me, the personal and professional. Yeah, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm cool with hearing both. <laughs> so, okay, so um, from a professional standpoint, from uh, for educators, I think the big takeaway, the one thing we have to remember, we learned there were a lot of things that we were very frustrated with, right? And but there are some good things that came out of having to be remote, um, and one of them for me was. And it happened today when we joined this um, webinar is everyone says, how are you? And you take that moment to just check in, right? I can't tell you how many times when I was a teacher, you know, the kids arrived in your classroom and you just say good morning and you get started, but you don't take that, that breath, that pause, right? To just check in with everyone in the classroom. I remember early in my career, I, I had a mood meter in my classroom and my kids had mood meters. How are you doing today? And we used to do that. I did that with like third and fourth graders. But I think I do it now in every workshop I do. I take a minute to say on a scale of one to 10, where do you see yourself today? And how are you feeling? Or I put up, the do- there's like all kinds of great images on Google, different dogs and how their feelings are on a scale of baby Yoda. How are you feeling? And then personally, it's just taking some time to decompress every day. Just because I found needing to walk away from the screen. I, I go home now much more tired because I'm in front of a screen all day and I I need that time away from a screen. And so what, when we're back to a point where I am back in classrooms and back in face-to-face meetings, I won't need that as much. But you know, even when I go home, I, I try to have a no technology day, one day, either Saturday or Sunday, I don't turn a computer on. And we have a lot of them in our house and they, they don't go on, they don't go on. But the other thing that I really take away is I, I wonder if, and this is a question I've had for a very long time of my career, I just wonder if the structure of how we do school is what we need for all of our students. I don't know if people realize, but it was back in 1892 that it was determined that we would have eight years of elementary school and four years of high school. And at that time, the recommendation was 
four years of English, four years of social studies, two years of math, and two years of science, which is still New York State high school requirements. That was from the National Education Association of the US Committee on Secondary School. It was called the Committee of 10. Um, I wrote my undergraduate research paper on that. And it was 10 white men who decided what we were gonna do. And I think it's time that we have a diverse group of people look at what we need for all students. And I, this whole last 18 months makes me wonder like, should school be from you know eight to three for students? Are there, are there alternatives? Do we have students who, need night school and need it to be synchronous, but not where they physically have to go somewhere. Um, do, we have, do we have students who are always gonna learn better not being in a classroom of 23 because of anxieties or, or other reasons, medical conditions? So I, I really wonder like, is there a different structure for our entire school system? That I'm sure nobody's going to ever, we're not going to get there as a society, but those are kind of my wonderings as a result of the pandemic. I mean, we we survived, we're saying, oh, we are seeing that there's more regression in math than there was in reading and kids weren't making progress in certain ways. But if our goal is to prepare our students to be successful in society and and be able to be college or career ready, I don't know if we need our school system to be the way that it's structured. And that's one of the reasons I, I don't mean to go back to kind of sell iTutor, but it's one of the reasons you think about iTutor. iTutor works really well for some students. And in New York State, it's 10 hours a week of one-to-one -one tutoring um, on the work that they're missing in class. 10 hours is a lot less time than they normally spend in the classroom, but, but it some, works. Yeah. And there are some questions around the use of additional services. So I can, I can definitely transition us to deal with that. Before I do, though, I just, if there's a moment to rabble rouse, and there's a moment to break the mold about what we've always done. This is the moment, right? This is the moment for us to evaluate, to look back and see where are our opportunities to do better. Our kids deserve that. And so I'm really glad that both of you have named that, both for yourselves, like where can I do better for myself and my family and the people that love me and that I love, but where can we do better for the kids? Because this, it, we don't have to continue on the path if it's just the way we've always done it, there's no there's no reason that we have to do that. Let's use research. Let's use science. Let's use, you know, people in the field that are changing the game to help drive us forward as a society. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So there are quite a few questions that I would love to just kind of bring us to the end of our time together, close us out with some of these burning questions that our participants have today. The first one is, other than certified teachers, what actually helped you decide to go ahead with iTutor? I think the, the of course, the, the some of the flexible scheduling with families, I, working um, directly on the pacing that we provide from our school district and materials that we provide from our school district. Definitely the, the wonderful customer service that we receive from the iTutor team whenever you reach out with questions or concerns, you get immediate response. And if parents have concerns, it can go directly to the iTutor team. It doesn't have to particularly filter through. And I think parents enjoy that. They don't want to have to wait until the next day to reach someone in the school district if they're having a tech issue, if it's something that, that iTutor can kind of troubleshoot them through. 
they really enjoy that. And of course, our, our older students like that as well, because that's what they're used to. So I think that really real-time support is very, very important. And, and I'll echo that. And the flexibility to me was key. And the fact that the troubleshooting with all the technology was happening with be, behind the scenes by iTutor. And I also think the quality of the instructors that iTutor provides and the, and the fact that iTutor, the sessions are recorded. So if there's ever a question or a problem, you can go back and look at it. I think I've done that in, in the four years and the tens of thousands of hours that we've used iTutor for. I think there was once a question. And it was actually a pretty silly question because the tutor had no power at their house and had driven to a location um, and sat in their car outside of a Starbucks to conduct the session. And the parent was upset. And um, we were able to look at the video and there was nothing wrong with the session. It's just that the person, yes, they were in a parking lot, but I thought the tutor was pretty creative. But yeah, the flexibility and also the caliber of the instructors that are provided. I think that there are a lot of people who are, again, thinking about ways to personalize learning. And so folks like you have turned to iTutor in an effort to make the learning opportunity, learning experience for a child specific to what their needs may be. There is a question here about tutoring as well. What do you think about hybrid models of learning? And do you think tutoring or teaching services like iTutor offers or other organizations offer will continue post-pandemic? So I definitely think that it'll continue post-pandemic with my special education hat on knowing that in New York state, if a child, um, I believe what it says is if a child is absent for more than 10 consecutive days, you have to provide tutoring. So I, I don't know what they're absent in a hybrid environment if you have to provide tutoring. We're always gonna have students who are potentially suspended, the medically fragile, who, you know, if, if you have a suspended student, are you gonna have them come into your classroom or is that a reward, right? So I do think that we're going to always need tutoring. I mean, we're not replacing teachers in any way with tutors. This is for the exception that 1% of your students who for some reason aren't in school and, and need to have an education. And we do have an obligation to provide a free and appropriate public education to all of our students. Not to mention the research is really strong around tutoring, right? So right now there's a bunch of state initiatives across Rhode Island, across New Jersey to implement wide scale tutoring, not just to remediate gaps, but to help advance kids forward, focus on the skills ahead of them as well, not just the skills behind them. Katina, I'm curious on your end too, do you see tutoring existing in this post-pandemic world? I know you were doing it before, so I think I know where your, your answer is, but how will you use tutoring in a post-pandemic world? Let's let's maybe change that a bit. Yeah, I think we are going to definitely continue tutoring for our students. I think it will depend on the grade level. I think we'll probably look at, probably continue to do small group for some of our younger students because it's kind of a little bit more challenging for them to maybe engage one-to-one -one with the tutor. But with our older students, I see it becoming one or two students digging into content more on an individual level instead of maybe some of that whole group type of tutoring. So I definitely see tutoring being a part and more students taking advantage of tutoring because I think instruction is going to continue to change. And I think students will want to have additional opportunities to have their questions asked outside of the school day. And I think tutoring will definitely lend itself for that. 
That's a great iteration on what you've done before, plus the learning. And I think that what we talked about is innovation, how you both defined it at the start of our conversation. All right. Well, we have time for one more question. I'm going to ask a question that was posed quite a bit ago. It's very specific, but I think that Dr. Wilson will have a really important light to shine on it. So as we discuss innovation, have you had any experience providing services for students who are incarcerated? I oversee students with disabilities in local and regional jails for the state, and it has been difficult trying to facilitate instruction in these facilities. So um, what I'll answer is my first teaching job was in a men's maximum security prison um, at Greenhaven in New York. And um, first of all, thank you so much for working with individuals who are incarcerated and trying to be sure that they receive an education. And I think, honestly, the best thing is going to be to partner with the jails. We were, you know, as an instructor, we were there. It's just a matter of everyone seeing the importance of the education for the people who are incarcerated. And I definitely could see using video conferencing as a platform where individuals are tutored. It might not be able to be on a computer one-to-one, but more projected in the room so that someone at the facility can be supervising and hearing what's going on. But again, the fact that iTutor records what's being said towards the session could be really helpful to you on their their proprietary platform and how it works Um, might really be a game changer if your local authorities are willing to accept that. That's something we've actually been to a couple of local facilities around Long Island. When our hub was Long Island, now we are everywhere, but iTutor had been really partnering with different facilities to figure out the best ways to support the individual needs of of students spanning all ages. All right, so we are right at the end of our time together. I want to take a moment, like we talked about at the beginning, See how everybody's doing, check in, but also let people know that for more resources, ideas, and innovations that Dr. Wilson and Ms. Davis shared in today's episode, please visit itutor.com. But I really want to thank all of the guests who joined us live to participate in our conversation and the imitable duo of Katina and Jennifer who have shown a light on a number of important topics today. Thank you both for taking time out of a busy school year, out of a busy day, out of a busy week to be here with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much. So I just want to sign off today sharing a little bit of inspiration and saying that all of us are working together on making the world a better place. As educators, that is our drive. Let's find the ways that we can do better together. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.